And we got Christmas coming in three weeks. I don't know about you, but it completely snuck up on me. Just kind of uh, came in under the, the, the door or something. I don't know. Um, but here we are in three weeks with Christmas. And Christmas is probably the most familiar holiday in all of the West, if you think about it. The most familiar holiday that we have. And yet, how much do we really know about Christmas? How much do we really know about Jesus' birth? about what actually happened. There is so little information in the Gospels. You know, only two of the four Gospels have any information about the birth narrative and about Jesus' birth, and that's Matthew and Luke. And Luke is the only one that tells us anything about the birth per se. Matthew only tells us that he was born in Bethlehem and then goes right into the Magi. And in Luke, we really only have about one or two lines that give us any kind of detail at all. So let's, let's read Luke 2 just so we can get a sense of what we got to work with here, right? Luke 2, starting around at verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I don't know about you all, but every time I read this, I'm always thinking about Linus, you know, reading it. He did it so beautifully in that, that Christmas show back in the 60s. Whoa, dating myself. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quintinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. That's it. He goes right into the shepherds from there, right? That last line. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. That's it. Lying, wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, no room in the end. You know, the details are critical to a story, at least a good story. It's all about the details. And the details in a good story are never random. They always have purpose. They're there because they have a purpose, not just superfluous. And they're showing something that is important for us to understand in this story. And it moves the the story forward at the same time. Now, if you think about it, we live detail by detail in our lives. So we're used to details being the kind of the the groundwork, the the, the floor of all of of our moments is detail by detail. And we can prove authenticity with detail at the same time. Every time that you log in sometimes, right, log in online, they're asking you details. And it's going to be those, those really obscure details, you know, mother's maiden name or, you know, where, city where you're born in, your third grade teacher, your first pet's name. It's going to be stuff that is so down in the weeds that only you would know. But that's a, the whole point of details. You know someone by the intimate details that you share that nobody else shares. And I went to Boston in the fall all by myself on business one year, long time ago. And I can tell you, I went to Boston in the fall and it was cold. It doesn't tell you a whole lot. You just kind of log it in your head, right? 
But if I start telling you about coming from California, how different it was for me to see the formal wear that the men and women were wearing as they walked around the streets of downtown Boston with their long coats down to their ankles and the scarves that were wrapped around their necks, the gloves, none of which I had because I was freezing. And I could tell you how my ears ached because of the cold and the tip of my nose actually burned. I can tell you about how there would be gleaming skyscrapers right next to 300-year-old buildings. And I could tell you walking a few blocks out from the downtown commercial center, suddenly you're in the midst of all these brownstones that look like they just came out of a movie or something, you know, with the one flight up and the, and the, the stone exterior. It was just, it was amazing. And I can tell you that walking down to Faneuil Hall, I can tell you about the oyster stew that I had. <laughs> I can tell you about small children walking around with plates of lobster that were as big as they were out of cafeterias because it was so inexpensive. It was cheaper than steak. But that oyster stew, oysters floating in this thick white broth that were as big as silver dollars. And if you let it sit for just a minute, the butter would rise up to the top and create these yellow circles floating on the top of the starting to get the picture? See, it's the details. They're not random. They take us somewhere. They're showing us something important. And these details here, as few as they are, have a purpose. They're proving something. They're showing us something that we really need to know. So let's just take a really quick look at the three details we've got. And I want to start with the inn. And I'm sorry to burst your bubble after your whole life of watching Christmas plays, but there was probably no inn. <laughs> you know, there weren't inns in first century Judea the way we think of inns as a Motel 6 or, or, a, or motel, you know, whatever. There were things called a con. A con was like a truck stop. And it was situated on the main trade routes, the caravan routes. And it was just like a truck stop. You could go there when you're weary from traveling. There was a place to, to uh, stable your animals and to water and feed them. There was a place for you to go and sleep if you wanted to and to water and feed yourself. And, of course, there were probably brothels most of the time. But it was a truck stop. There is no trade route or caravan route th through Bethlehem. There is nothing there that would necessitate this kind of con. And the word that is used there is not con. The word that is used is serah, sherah in Aramaic, which means literally to loosen or to eat or to lodge, but in context it means a living space. And if you know the, the, the layout of first century Judean homes, the poor ones were just one room one dirt-floored room. And what they would do is construct a platform through a portion of the floor space. Part of it was dirt and part of it was a raised platform. The raised platform was the shera. The raised platform was the living space. And that's where they slept and that's where they ate. The dirt floor was where the animals were kept and where the cooking was done. So you could mess up on the dirt and then just sweep it right back up again. And why were the animals in the house? Because where else were you going to put them? Especially at night when it's cold and they could be stolen from outside. They needed to be warm. So imagine the smells, all the you know those lovely aromas that were happening all at the same time but the living space. Now, if you were richer, then you might have a second floor. And the second floor would be your shirah. The second floor would be your living space. In fact, when Jesus is looking for the upper room, and it's translated upper room in Mark 14, 14, he sends his disciples to rent that upper room for the Last Supper. 
that is the shira as well. And so it's the upper room that is the living space and the cooking and all of the, the uh, more public things were taken care of on the first floor. And then there was a space for the animals. Sometimes these homes are constructed into the sides of hills and so they would cut out a cave and the animals would go into that recess because the temperature would be uniform and so on and so forth. Dirt floor again. So what was happening here is that Joseph and Mary needed to go to Bethlehem, to the city of their lineage, in order to register for the, for the census, and they were staying with relatives. And in these first century villages, everybody was pretty much related to everybody else in a very you know, direct way. And so they were probably staying with relatives or close friends. And by the time they got there, there was no space for them in the living space on that platform or on that second floor, most likely a second floor. So they had to sleep with the animals. And think about that. It's not just sleeping with the animals, but she had to deliver her baby in that environment as well with all those lovely smells. At least it was warm, though. There was that. But no privacy. You know, not, it was just a very, very difficult place for them to be. And then when the baby is born, this idea of wrapping in claws Probably a better translation is swaddling bands, and some of your translations, English translations, will translate it that way. But the idea was when a Hebrew baby was born, the first thing they did was cut the cord, they washed the baby, they rubbed the baby with salt. Salt was the, the magic bullet there for anything that had to do with infection that they knew nothing about, but they rubbed him with salt or her with salt, and then they wrapped the baby tightly in these bands of cloth, cut strips of cloth or actual bands for the purpose. It wasn't clothing, and it wasn't actual a blanket. It was strips of cloth. So baby ended up kind of looking like a mummy, if you want to think of it that way, or at least a burrito. I always think of the burrito baby. And you know, we all know you wrap the baby tightly so that it feels like it is still in the womb and, and feels secure and all of that. But this was a normal treatment for a, for a Hebrew baby. But they're not in the normal space for delivering a child. They're with the animals. So what are they going to do with them then? Well, then there was the, the uh, manger. And that was usually stone or mud or, or, or some type of material that they could hollow out the... Uh, the top surface, and then put the animal's feet in there. So it makes a natural crib. And so the baby was laid in the manger. But all these details, what do they point to? They all depict a normal Hebrew baby's birth of a very poor family, right? Unremarkable, really unnoticed for the most part. And you say, unnoticed? Well, what about the shepherds? They certainly noticed. What about the magi? They certainly noticed, absolutely. But I want you to think about something. What about the rest of the people living in that house where Joseph and Mary were staying? Relatives, maybe? Friends, maybe? They sure didn't notice anything unusual about Joseph and Mary. They didn't certainly make any room for them. It was kind of first come, first served in the living space, obviously. And they didn't really make any kind of issue about the birth itself. There is nothing recorded about any of these people who were closest to Joseph and Mary at this moment because the birth was so normal to them. That, to me, is fascinating. Jesus later says at John 4 that a prophet is not honored in his own country. Well, the prophet certainly wasn't honored in 
the house at that time. But it's fascinating to me that these people who were right there didn't make room and didn't notice what was going on in any special way. And yet, people from the outside came in. Why did the relatives see nothing special? Why did Herod have to ask after the birth? Because he saw nothing special. And yet the shepherds and the magi saw so much. And this really is the important point that these birth stories are trying to get across, I believe. You probably all heard the saying that seeing is believing, right? And the truth is, I suppose, that (laughs) we can all see the same thing at the same time and all believe different things about it. You know, eyewitnesses are about the most unreliable witnesses that you can have, as it turns out, because everybody sees something different, even though we're seeing the same thing. And yet, we think that seeing is believing. And yet, there was a British poet, 19th century, who said that some things have to be believed to be seen. Now, that may sound like a recipe for seeing anything that you just want to see. And maybe that would be true if we're only talking about believing as an intellectual assent, an intellectual agreement. I agree to believe this. So maybe that would not be very powerful in that sense. But the real significance of things can only be seen by those who are prepared to see it. What are you trained to see? Think about it. In, in your work, in your, in your life, the hobbies you've had, the, the things that you've done in your life, what are you trained to be able to see that others would miss? Is it art? Are you someone who's trained in art? Did you take art history? Are you an artist yourself? Are you able to see the brush strokes, see the technique, see the composition, see things in art that other people miss, to see that this is valuable and this is not? Is that something that you're trained to do? Are you a woodworker? So when you walk into a kitchen, you see the cabinets and you see how they're constructed and you know when this quality is right in front of you and when something is not. And you can appreciate the time and the energy and the effort and the expense it took to do certain things. Are you you a sportsman, you know? Are you able to watch a football game or a baseball game that others are bored out of their gourd watching but you can see it and you get inside the game and you know it so well that you see all the nuances and see things that others miss. Or are you just somebody who loves somebody else? (laughs) Have you ever said or had someone say to you, what do you see in that guy? What is it that we see that others miss? Yeah, I know, maybe it's a little codependent, but what if it's not? What if you just have gotten to know someone gotten to know who they are underneath the facade that everyone else misses, but you actually can see. Whatever you are trained in, whatever you've been prepared in, you can see what others miss, and you can value what others don't. As a kid, when I was growing up Catholic, I loved the baby Jesus. I just, I connected. I had something in common. I was a kid too. He was a kid. And, and I just, I love the stories. I love the whole Christmas thing. I really connected with that. Now, not so much with the bleeding man on the cross. That I didn't connect with. Nothing in common. It was kind of scary. It was distant. It was way up there. I didn't connect so much with that. 
but I did connect with the baby Jesus. Now, later on, as I got older and I got busier, I fell out of love with the baby Jesus. He was no longer relevant to me. I didn't feel like I had anything in common. But then when I got into my 30s and life mugged me, that's not really a fair statement. Actually, I got mugged by the sheer weight of my own decisions for the most part. But when that happened, suddenly I had something in common again with the man who suffered on the cross. And I wanted to connect. I wanted to fall in love with him again. But my head kept getting in the way. What I thought I knew about Jesus, what I carried around with me. And it wasn't until I was hollowed out even more, because life will hollow you out, whether it's things that are done to you or things that just happen, consequences of your choices, you get opened up, you get hollowed out. But I needed to be hollowed out even more of all the things that I was still carrying around because it wasn't until I was completely ready to let go of everything that I thought I knew about Jesus, let go of everything that I thought he was, that I was finally able to see him as he was and then fall in love with him again. There was a process there that I had to go through I had to get myself out of the way, get hollowed out more, be willing to sell everything that I thought I knew and let go of all of this so that I could see him again for the very first time. I had to return to the beginner's mind, return to the attitude of a child as if I was seeing something for the very first time so that I could see the significance in a baby lying in a manger or a man bleeding on a cross. But it took that. It took that ability. I had to be prepared before I could see what had always been right in front of me since my earliest memories. All the details of Jesus' life point to a person living on the margins of life. This birth we talked about, these details that are set up and preserved for 2,000 years in our scripture are pointing to a very poor birth, a very poor family, someone who lived on the margins. Poor, but at the same time grateful. Not bitter, not despising their station in life, but grateful at the same time that they're poor. Vulnerable, unassuming, and wholly dependent on God because they had learned in life that there wasn't much control that they could exert over any of their circumstances, anything that they needed in life. But they had learned to be completely dependent on God, childlike in that dependence. And the word for that is anavim. That's a Hebrew word that is the ideal that the Hebrews held for someone who was the closest person to God, who understood that they were dependent, understood that they were vulnerable. In other words, they were humble, but they were grateful at the same time and had learned to just lean on God not on their own understanding, not on their own ability, but just able to lean on God. Jesus captures this Anavim spirit when he talks about those who are poor in spirit in the first beatitude. And that phrase there, which is an idiomatic phrase, meskina baruch in Aramaic, means those who are and have an attitude of poverty, even if you're rich. Now, you can be a rich Anavim, or you can be a poor Anavim. 
But that idea of having that attitude of poverty, that dependence, that vulnerability is the key. Now, this is a a spiritual and a religious ideal that the Hebrews held. But culturally, of course, they were so much like us. This is the reason that Jesus had to keep pushing the idea of the Anavim. To tell his followers, if you want to lead, then you have to serve. If you want to be first, you have to be last. Because culturally, they didn't live up to, they didn't even value the idea of the Anavim. They were still honoring those who were powerful. They were still honoring those who had sway over things, who had control. And this is why Jesus told them, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom because they are relying on themselves. They are relying on their riches. They are not anavim. And of course, everybody flipped out because culturally, you're closer to God. You're blessed by God if you have all these things. But Jesus is saying, no, there is another attitude. Trying to get the people to come back to the original ideal of their own heritage, of their own faith. We're never going to be able to see the significance of this baby lying in a manger or value the significance until we have developed this Anavim spirit. Now, Mary and Joseph, absolutely Anavim. Look at the way they react to the promptings of the spirit, both Mary and Joseph. Reread the birth narratives and see what they go through, but how they are just ready to flow with God's command. Despite their fear, Despite their initial resistance or reaction, they flow with God's Spirit. They are grateful, even for the dirt space that they get within this house in in Bethlehem. The shepherds were anavim. That's why the angels could speak to them. That's why they understood that there was something going on here that other people were not seeing. And of course, the magi were anavim. And the magi are so interesting to take a look at, because these were the opposite of everyone else that we're talking about. These were men who were rich. These are men who were powerful. These are men who were magistrates. They were priests. They were astronomers, astrologers. They were scientists. They were advisors to the king. Daniel in the Old Testament was one of these, an advisor to the king, someone that the king relied on. And it could possibly be that these magi were the descendants of the Jewish exiles in Babylon, possibly waiting decade after decade and century after century for the promise to be fulfilled, looking to the stars to see the shapes, the movement that would give them the cue and the clue. But despite their status, despite their education, their power and their wealth, they were still humble. They were still vulnerable, dependent, and childlike. They were willing to risk looking ridiculous by willing to risk being wrong, to set out on this crazy journey across the frontier between the Parthian and the Roman empires. Dangerous, long journey. For what? To follow the star? To follow the idea that they had of the promise that was in their hearts? Who does that? Who leaves the seat of power to become completely vulnerable on a journey for something greater? The Anavim do. These Magi were Anavim. They were prepared, rich or poor, 
to see the significance of this child and eventually of this man. 1,200 years later, in the midst of a, a wealthy life and a church that had become fabulously wealthy, by the time Francis of Assisi comes on the scene, the church was telling the kings of Europe what to do. The force of excommunication was so great that no one could withstand the power of the pope or the power of the church. So this is the life that Francis grows up in. A wealthy family, a wealthy father, a wealthy church, and yet he found somehow his Anavim heart. And if you know anything about the life of Francis or you read about the life of Francis, you know that it was his personality, part of it. It's who he was, that he was this kind of character, but at the same time that he could see through the facade. He could see through all of that wealth and power to what really mattered, the real significance that was on the other side of that. And he loved the idea of God expressing himself in human form and showing us what love really looked like so much that he was just enamored with it. They said he wanted to think of nothing else. He loved Christmas because it was a celebration of that moment, right? The moment where Emmanuel, God is with us. And he wanted to immerse it again in the experience of the Magi. And so in 1223, he actually goes to the Pope, Pope Honorius III, and gets permission to set up the first nativity scene. Is this cool or what? Did you know that it was Francis? So many things. We're just learning about Francis. He was never ordained. We learned that last week with, with Scott's ordination ceremony. And he was the first one to set up a nativity scene. Now, for him, he did it in the, in the village of, okay, Grecho. How'd I do? Uh, Angelo, yeah, Grecho, the little village of Grecho. And uh, it was more of a nativity play. It was, it was full-size stable. It was actual people as actors. It was live animals and donkeys and oxen. And it was a full play that he put together in the village there, in the village square. And all of the people participated at the same time. And I have a little bit of a eyewitness account. Okay, eyewitnesses, we just disparaged those, but here we go anyway, right? This is Thomas of Solano, and he was a, a follower of Francis, a friend of Francis, lifelong friend, and an eyewitness to this first nativity play. And he writes, Francis would recall Christ's words through persistent meditation and bring to mind his deeds through the most penetrating consideration. The humility of the incarnation the charity of the passion occupied his memory particularly to the extent that he wanted to think of hardly anything else. The day of Christmas drew near. The time of great rejoicing came. The brothers were called from their various places. Men and women of that neighborhood prepared with glad hearts according to their means, candles and torches to light up that night. The manger was prepared. The hay had been brought. The ox and ass were led in. There, simplicity was honored. Poverty was exalted. Humility was commended. And Grecho was made, as it were, a new Bethlehem. The night was lighted up like the day, and it delighted men and beasts. The people came and were filled with new joy over the new mystery. The woods rang with the voices of the crowd, and the rocks made answer to their jubilation. The brothers sang, paying their debt of praise to the Lord, and the whole night resounded with their rejoicing. When Francis came, finding all things prepared, he saw it and was glad.
He is dressed in the vestments of the deacon and with full voice sings the holy gospel, a powerful voice, a pleasant voice, a clear voice, a musical voice, inviting all to the highest of gifts. Then he preaches to the people standing around him and pours forth sweet pours forth sweet honey about the birth of the poor king and the poor city of Bethlehem. Moreover, burning with excessive love, he often calls Christ the babe from Bethlehem, saying the word Bethlehem in the manner of a bleeding sheep. Bethlehem. <laughs> I imagine, you know, but this is Francis, willing to look ridiculous, completely outside of the self-conscious stance that so many of us take, right? Completely immersed, humble, willing. He called himself in French, jongleur de Dieu, which literally means juggler of God, you know, the jester of God, or not too far a stretch, God's clown. He would stand on his head so that he could see the world in a new way. He was just that kind of guy. So Bethlehem is not too far of a stretch. I love this. He fills his mouth with sound, but even more with sweet affection. He seems to lick his lips whenever he uses the expressions Jesus or babe from Bethlehem, tasting the word on his palate and savoring the sweetness of the word. Francis stands before the manger, filled with heartfelt sighs and overcome with wondrous joy. Don't you love all these details, intimate details? And I know maybe uh, Thomas was a little overzealous and <laughs> enthusiastic in the way that he rendered this. But at the same time, all those details bring it to life and start to bring Francis and his Anavim spirit to a place where we can start to understand because we know the way our children operate in our lives, right? We know what they bring to our homes, the small ones. And here's Francis, a full-grown man, man with that same attitude, that Anavim spirit that just brings everything alive. And if you're going to have a Christmas gathering, you want Francis there, right? Because he's going to make it complete. Here he is in this experience, in complete immersion to the experience, a complete reflection of God's love, especially in that sense of playfulness that he had, that sense of humor and humility, that in-loveness that he had. And he's lost in this sensory overload and the power of the moment brought to cheers by recognizing Jesus. Now we get no such details of the Magi. We're just told that they came and deposited their gifts and left by another way, right? But can you imagine the type of person and the type of personality who would make that journey, who would risk that ridicule, risk being wrong, to show up at the feet of an infant in a poor surrounding and setting like that. There's got to be some of the same kind of personality there that Francis is exhibiting here. And so the question then becomes, how about us? What's our reaction to this babe in the manger? Can we recognize Jesus in our lives? I wanted to read another little bit from another Franciscan. This is a woman, her name is Elise Segal, and she is of the third order of St. Francis, so she's a nun in the, in the Franciscan tradition. And she writes this, 
The story of the Incarnation is really our story. It is the exact meeting point of God and human beings. We so often think of God as some kind of remote power or superhuman energy that has somehow set this whole creation thing going and then stepped back to see what would happen. It is impossible for God to step back from anything God has chosen to be involved with. At the very first moment of creation, God freely decided to get involved with you and me and with all created beings. Absolutely everything God does, God does with free, unconditional, absolute, and irrevocable love. This is very hard for us to understand and accept because we, of ourselves, do not naturally love this way. Yet every Christmas we celebrate that God came among us as one of us so we could love like God and be like God and share God's own life forever. Francis of Assisi was profoundly moved as he contemplated God's coming among us as a human being in Jesus Christ. This reality filled him with awe. He understood that we human beings are essentially poor, that of ourselves we actually are nothing. Everything we are and have has been given to us by God in love. We are totally dependent on the God who lovingly and freely created us and who holds us in being. When Francis talked about poverty, this is what he was talking about, the recognition of what we are before God. See, this is it. This is the preparation to realize what and who we are in life. That's the best definition of humility you'll ever hear. It is understanding who we really are and the relationship that we have with everyone and everything else. To understand that relationship is to understand humility. It's not about debasing ourselves and certainly not about raising ourselves up, but just seeing who we really are. And who we really are is anavim. But if we don't recognize it, if we don't value it, if we don't become aware and live it, then we can't see beyond just the material, and we get lost in that. This is what it's all about. When Francis thought about this little newborn baby lying in utterly poor circumstances, son of an equally poor mother, it moved Francis to tears that this little human being could be a full manifestation of the God of all creation, astounded him, and wakened him in the most ardent and grateful love. It made him want to laugh and sing and shout and weep. So that is exactly what he did. Francis was a man who really expressed his emotions. For him, the Gospels came alive and were made present in highly charged, dramatic action. Word and deed were as one. To know the story was to become a participant in it, to play a role in it, to live it in such a way that its power became irresistible to others. It's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, if you think about it. The Father's love changes us, brings us back to who we really are. But we need to be changed enough to see it, to recognize it, or at least enough to be willing to be immersed, like the Magi, like Francis, willing to be wrong, willing to look ridiculous, willing to admit limits of knowledge and power and suspend what we think we know and then let go of the illusion of that power, that security. We must be enough like God on Avim to 
to be able to see and recognize him as he presents to us in any moment, in everyone and everything around us, in places where we don't expect him to be present to us. Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the Magi and Francis all could do this. They had these common traits of humility and childlike purity. They had a willingness to set off on a destination with no guarantee, just following real-time direction in faith and in trust, the ability to immerse in relationships that were present right here and right now. The Magi set out to find a king, a priest, and a prophet. What they found was a a poor, speechless child. The promise of their star that led them was still unformed and unrecognizable in that manger, in that stable in Bethlehem. But their Anavim hearts allowed them to see past their expectations, to surrender, and to just trust. And so for all of us, as we set out to find our God, he will still be presented in the same way. He'll be presented as an unformed child. We will never get the full answers we are looking for to the questions that we have. We will never get the certainty that we're looking for because we're afraid. It will be this child. Christmas is the promise of our star that leads us, but the promise still unformed Are we anavim enough to see past that to the fullness that is present and always is and always will be? Our God is an unassuming God. He's humble, vulnerable. Our God is anavim, and that's something very foreign to us. We will never see God until we are enough like God, valuing what he values and loving what he loves. I wanted to read one more thing for you. And this was a journal entry from a few years ago. It's just really present in my mind. It's a week before Christmas. I'm waiting at a stoplight in December darkness. I have a front row seat at the crosswalk. Through the passenger window, I catch what must be a father and daughter beginning their walk across the intersection. Moving very slowly, I wonder if they'll get across in time. Both carry cardboard coffee cups in their right hands, but while his free arm swings with each step, I notice hers held stiffly bent against her side. She appears 11 or 12 years old as I collect details left hand curled cruelly back at the wrist, left foot turned sharply inward and the limping shuffle it creates, thick glasses and puffy features. It dawns why they move so slowly across across my glass screen. Father matches her pace with practiced grace, unhurried, vaguely protective, but not hovering either. They went to Starbucks. He bought her coffee, or more likely hot chocolate, amid all those lights and decorations in the store. I wondered how it all appeared to her through those thick glasses, how she must have smiled looking around, up at him, back around. I wondered how it all appeared to him, 
being forced to walk so slowly to match that shuffling pace for 11 or 12 years for the rest of her life or the rest of his. Perhaps to learn to see life as his daughter saw it, would always see it, when he realized he couldn't change her. Had she changed him? The hot chocolate and the unhurried, unselfconscious walk in front of all those windshields implied so much. Christmas has a way of bringing vague, submerged feelings to the surface, the way hook and line bring up fish. We find ourselves suddenly grasping, squirming emotions that should have nothing to do with Christmas, with what we think Christmas is supposed to mean, what we remember it used to mean. You see, we imprint the meaning of Christmas through a child's eyes, then suddenly mourn its loss each year through adult eyes. Christmas hasn't changed. The possibility of Christmas returns every December. We have changed. We've lost the pace of childhood. I'm thinking maybe Christmas as remembered happens exactly when we stop trying to make it happen. When we stop running faster and faster trying to catch the stored experiences of Christmas, maybe meaning finally has a chance to catch up and catch us. I can't choose the pace of life around me any more than I can alter the course of a storm. But maybe I can choose my own pace within it. Maybe I can allow myself to shuffle through the crosswalk with a warm cardboard cup in my hand and the sense of a patient father at my side. See, I have a father who can see past my unformed promise, the unformed promise of my life. A father who can recognize my beauty inside of, in spite of myself and continue to teach me with unfailing love to see and to do the same as he does everywhere I look. And so do you, every one of us. Of course, we will always find our God as a child, unformed and always forming at the same time. Why expect any other form? Every time we meet our God is Christmas morning. The babe is in the manger, the star is in the east, and we are the Magi. Let's pray. Father, you always present things ways that we don't expect. You are eternal surprise. And if we can learn to love that about you and stop fighting it and resisting it, we will find ourselves in your embrace. Help us to stop fighting and resisting. Help us to learn to love the surprise. Help us to leave our self-consciousness behind us so that we can experience new things that only scare us right now. Help us to see that the Anavim heart is what will take us where we really want to go. And to spare no expense and leave no stone unturned in order to get there. Thank you for the example. Thank you for everything that you do to let us know that it's okay to be silly. It's okay to be like a child. It's okay to have fun and enjoy the ride. Father, this Christmas... Help us to see more and more that this is exactly who you are. 
in everything that you do every moment of our lives and to see our Christmas from a vantage point three feet off the ground. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.